Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey the Regulator Knockreiner. That's my wrestling name this week. I'm picturing you like carrying a sledgehammer on one of those like, personal injury attorney, yeah, personal injury attorney posters or whatever. Corey the Regulator. <laughs> Anyways, maybe it's just because I live in Texas and that is literally all that there is on billboards across the state. Lawyers. Um, yes, lawyers. This is not a law podcast, though. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing another alert out of the FBI and CISA on a threat actor that has been breaching multiple companies recently. Uh, we'll give an update on a ransomware operator that has hit some high profile uh, victims recently as well, too. And then we will dive into NIST2, the National or Network and Information Security or NIS Directive out of the European Union and what you should expect from it in the coming year. Corey, we'll we're not lawyers, but we're now. not afraid to give you all of our opinion on regulation and law. <laughs> we are not lawyers and this is not legal advice. Let's go ahead and, uh, I don't know, regulate our way in. Man, that was bad. Smash, smash. Smash our way in. There oh, wait, go. no, no, we don't use that one. No cap, Corey. <laughs> yes! Success! He used it. So let's start with the first story for this week. And it comes out of our good friends, yet again, from the FBI and CISA. And I know, Corey, you gave me crap last week, I think, for this being the <laughs> CISA security podcast. But, you know, it's because they genuinely come out with good and like verbose and frequent advisories these days the frequent the big like i feel like i've gotten five this week alone a lot of uh, things that went to tlp is it white by the time or clear when we get clear. it and uh, i mean we sometimes get special amber ones we can't share but uh, the white ones like lots on ransomware lots on yeah they've been they've been verbose in a good way i guess before we jump into this advisory like it is worth noting it's there is a clear ramp up in advisories coming from the FBI and CISA to help private organizations uh, identify and respond to threats. Like even just a few years ago, it felt like we'd get one of these like CISA alerts or advisories like once a month at most, maybe once every couple of months. There's usually like some big name threat targeting government organizations. Now, like you said, we're getting like five a week. It feels like. From everything from a specific big threat actor to even just like a relatively minor threat actor that's at least emerging and starting to target critical infrastructure or even private organizations. It's good. Like, because they do tend to provide pretty great guidance, as you'll see in a second. And lately, very thorough detail on the types of activity they're reporting on. And I like just the amount of information that they're sharing lately. It's, I can't imagine how many more people they've had to hire to do this, but. I feel like they're they're kind of a good aggregator of all the information because like some of the when they do a big alert and they share a new ransomware actor, for instance, if you're like me and Mark and you follow every tidbit of news or you do it for research, we probably already have read the, the first scoop of that news when that ransomware actor came out and we probably know a lot of the details and CISA stuff might come out like a week later but it's like the consolidation of every article since then plus whatever inside info I mean they obviously don't share all their inside information but whatever they do they've add got their own declassified analysis. from the NSA 
Exactly. They they add a little bit of their knowledge that they can share. And as you point out, they do a good job of consolidating all the, the mitigations and steps. So I, I would I, I agree with all you said. I would say they're probably not the first. Like if you're you're looking for the feed to go to to learn of this ransomware actor first, uh, they're doing a lot of alerts, but they may not be the first, but they're a fantastic summary with all the aggregated information. So yeah. if you don't have the time to keep up with news real time, something like this is a great way to aggregate. And it may be a few days after some of the stories or a week after, but you'll still get all the right information quickly. And speaking of them not being the first, but being a great aggregator of information, including new tidbits. Uh, we first discussed this alert that we're going to chat about here again about three episodes ago on the topic of Scattered Spider. Uh, if you don't remember, Scattered Spider were the threat actors allegedly responsible for breaching a bunch of Las Vegas casinos like MGM and Caesars Resorts, uh, successfully encrypting one of them and allegedly successfully exfiltrating data and extorting the other one. Uh, well, CISA and the FBI just published this pretty long 14-page document detailing everything they know about Scattered Spider. And it even came alongside a, a news post of them basically asking the private industry to help work with them to find more information so they can bring them to justice and help disrupt them too. Uh, but in this advisory, they go through every single TTP that they know Scattered Spider uses, a bunch of the tools, including malware and off-the-shelf tools that they've been using, and some good mitigation advice at the end of it, too. And so we've covered a bit of this in the previous podcast, uh, but there were some I think, useful By the way, I did want to say here. one of the benefits of like we're talking about why, yes, it's it's later now that it's clear than the, when we broke the story. If you remember for this story, like the problem with breaking news is there's a lot of early misinformation about details like, oh, wait, was this a phone call to support? Was this a this or was it the Okta thing or or the only good thing about this is if you hadn't resolved that, if you read one of the early articles and thought it was one way that was the root cause and later on things kind of changed and coalesced as especially in this case where the threat actors themselves actually posted what they claim to have done. Now that all that is passed a few weeks by, hopefully this will be the most clear story of how it really happened. Clear. You might even say TLP clear. Yep. <laughs> but dump bump. If you didn't hey get the joke, he's talking about this being now for public consumption. <laughs> yep. Uh, so in the in their advisory, they go through a, a lot of their TTPs. They noted that Scattered Spider are experts in social engineering, is how they describe them. They typically pose as IT or service desk staff in phone calls or text messages to try and either steal credentials or get victims to run remote management tools, like legitimate ones. Uh, they use a lot of push bombing and MFA fatigue in order to get around MFA protection once they get those credentials. And they even uh, have conducted multiple SIM swapping attacks where they will convince a telco to go port a phone number over to a SIM card under their control so they can intercept text message based. MFA. Well, there's some like that is a more technical way to do this. I mean, it, me and Mark just want to make sure we'll, we'll get to this. But even though I love zero day and I love really technical hacks, real attackers, you know, they don't hack, they log in. Uh, 
you know, a breach is caused by hackers logging and not hacking in most cases. So really all of this comes down to getting a credential is their really main goal. And yes, there's some technical ways to get the credential like the SIM swap hacks, but things like push bombing and everything above is mostly social engineering. So uh, I just say that is I still think the best return in, in your investment right now for security is focusing on authentication, focusing on MFA, and then focusing all, on all the human tactics the bad guys are using lately to try to bat bypass that MFA and authentication. Agreed. Um, they go over some of the tools they most commonly use. And while there are some malware variants in here, like Mimikatz or Ave Maria, a lot of it is just legitimate software. Uh, there's a bunch of Screen RMM connect. tools in here. Yeah, FleetDeck, Level.io, Pulseway, Tactical RMM are all legitimate tools. There's remote connection tools like Screen Connect, like you just mentioned, TeamViewer, Ngrok, Splashtop. These are all programs where oh, anti-malware surprises me because it's just a, it's a cute little remote. Like to me, I didn't realize it was popular enough for malware actors. Like you all know TeamViewer probably, you all probably know VNC and of course a uh, uh, good old fashioned RDP, uh, but Splashtop is just like a consumer tool. So not only legitimate, but sometimes just kind of low rent consumer tools too. Yeah, and they're so using not. these and other living off the land techniques because your traditional endpoint protection isn't going to flag it as malicious because it is a legitimate program. And so if you aren't using like EDR tools can catch some of the follow on activities or application allow listing, which we'll get into later, like this activity will succeed and they'll gain a foothold on that endpoint. And uh, anomaly detection, hopefully things like uh, XDR or SIMS can give you, right? I mean, when it comes down to a legitimate tool, at some point, the best you can do is just figure out what the behaviors of your normal users logging in are to at least monitor for anomalies and in, in user logins. Yep, exactly. Uh, they then dive into all of the tactics, techniques, and procedures that they know are associated with Scattered Spider. Um, in the reconnaissance, uh, resource de uh, development and initial access. They pointed out to, as Corey's highlight in the video, uh, they typically follow a pattern for social engineering and phishing domains where they will use the victim's company name with uh, an appendant with like SSO or service desk or Okta, and then use that and phishing lures and phishing links. And of course, victim name could be mgm.sso or, or obviously insert said victim there. Uh, and then they also, again, highlighted the SIM swapping as a very common technique for getting that SMS-based MFA token. Now, for execution, persistence, and privilege escalation, they noted they typically will register their own MFA tokens after they've gained access. That means they don't have to do another push bombing attack or SIM swapping attack in order to reuse that credential they stole. They now have their own authenticator on that account that can allow but, them. But they in. do have to get pretty high access to do that, right? I mean, at, at that point that you're already hacked, because if they have admin access to issue their own MFA tokens, the point is once they have that access, they just have become their own legitimate use, seemingly legitimate user in your organization and can just use their own account and token. This is one way to catch them as well, too, though. If you remember the Solar Winds breach, uh, that was eventually unraveled when they uh, used their access on a SolarWinds Orion server at Mandiant, the uh, famous incident response organization. 
and then not only accessed, uh, so gained access to an employee's account and then added a second authenticator token onto that account. And that was the red flag that tipped off Mandiant so that something suspicious was going on. on. one account. Yep. By the way, you, you definitely have to watch your users though, because I, I I guess I won't share why I would, I'm, I'm like giving people, but I myself have multiple authenticator tokens on my same account because you use multiple devices. So I guess one trick you'll have to figure out if you're going to use that is do you does your policy allow your users to have like five different devices connecting if so i i guess you don't need the multiple mfas but the reason i have two tokens is if i ever lose or mess up my phone it's nice to have a backup device to, to mfa with too so figure out that in your policy or at least figure out the the special users that you've allowed to have multiple mfa tokens to their accounts well, and even uh, if you allow everyone or lock to have my multiple... iPad out, Mark, just lock my iPad out because it's an anomaly that I have two tokens. I won't give away like all the details of our own internal playbook, but one of the things we look at is like the source IP for that token registration uh, action. Where if Corey, you know, typically connects from his home IP or like the corporate VPN, so as most of his activity comes, and then suddenly we see activity from his account from a different IP, and then they register a new authentication token. That is a red yeah, that's flag. A, that's a bad, that's an obvious no, no, or, or unusual exactly. situation. I guess I could be traveling, but it's something you'd want to definitely go and research and follow up on. Exactly. And then by combining these different like features that you look into, you can lower some of the noise and avoid investigating every single new authenticator token being added. And that is the name of the game when it comes to security operations. Yeah. Um, so let's see, moving on to like discovery, lateral movement, exfiltration. They noted that they typically target information stores within companies, things like SharePoint sites or credential storage locations, source code repositories. They try and steal code signing certificates. They'll abuse public cloud uh, environments and set up their own EC2 instances to aid in exfiltration. And they will also use their access to monitor internal teams and Slack communications to keep tabs on the response for their intrusion and <laughs> potentially evade whatever uh, controls or updates the security team is trying to do in order to respond to the threat. That's why credential breaches suck because once they're inside, they definitely have lots of advantage to, to watch, watch that response. Total, so you... total side note, but uh, uh, security related. I don't know how many people watch morning show on uh, Apple TV. It's, it's about newscasters, but they had a cyber attack with a ransomware situation, a fake ransomware situation, but a ransomware situation where as they were responding to it, the threat actors were literally monitoring their mobile phones, watching, they had video, they might've overstated how sophisticated people are today because they're also watching the online, the IT videos situations to see where people were rooms. But it's a good example in media, at least at what you're talking about is once they're inside, they were monitoring the computer security team and the actual executive team's response to it and even reacting real time when the executives made a decision they had heard it through the phone message and they literally changed their tactic and told them hey go for it here's what's going to happen <laughs> so Man. it seems it seems that you watch shows like that and it seems like yeah maybe they overstated how easy that would be for attackers but the the reality is 
we are clearly seeing them watch us after they've breached us, watch the security team and adjust tactics based on that. So I hate to say it, but we definitely need our crap. Our, our, your, your incident response plan needs to be in gear. We definitely need and our crap. Here's, here's something, uh, your, your crap in line. Uh, actually, this might be off topic we wouldn't talk about in mitigation, Mark, but that's probably why this SOC, the security team, needs channels and privileges pre-set up for their communication that limits. For instance, we, without giving away playbooks, it's very common with SOCs that when we do have incidents, we do have to put them up on places for other people to see and note and work on. But we don't let the whole company see that. Even it's restricted to need to know basis. And that's probably a very important thing to do because in the, the situation someone is on Teams, maybe even has a privileged admin account, you know, or as an IT admin or an executive, they still may not have the privilege to get into our security operations response until we open it up to them. So it's a good way to maybe at least make sure the threat actor use least privilege everywhere. Because when the threat actors get in, you can at least limit how much of your actions they're following. Agreed. So speaking of mitigations, like after they go through every individual miter attack technique uh, that Scattered Spiders been using, yeah, they go into some pretty good mitigation recommendations. And the first one, and the one they spent the most time on, it felt like, was all around application allow listing and specifically around remote access tools. Because again, at the end of the day, these are legitimate tools. It's not like your antivirus is going to flag it as malicious. And so the strongest mitigation against them is just don't let employees install unwanted software, especially remote access tools. And they give some recommendations around auditing of that if you can't enforce it. So at least audit proactively for remote access software installations, look through your logs, through execution of them, and try and block as best you can, maybe at the network level too, with like just straight up blocking the ports and protocols that some of these tools use. Don't but if put you their management interfaces on the internet thinking the authentication yes. page is going to save you, as we've talked about many times. And remember, just to, to make sure you we're, we're honest about something like AD360 central management is a remote access tool. Uh, if a threat actor got privileged access to that tool, they could turn off all your endpoint and just use it as a way to deliver and install executables to your because all of these these EDR tools do have ways to push software. So uh, whether you're thinking about our tools, your Kaseya VSA, uh, whatever RMM tools you use, just plain old RDP. Uh, besides not letting people install their own, make it part of your policy. Don't don't open it up. I know it's nice to make it easy. It's nice that we live in a world where you can be on the bus on your phone and still get your central management, but put some access controls around that. So it's only you and you at least have a VPN there, as you can see them also requiring or recommending. Yep. And when it comes to those access controls, they also lean heavily on phishing resistant MFA. They point to specifically FIDO and uh, FIDO-based tokens as a second multi-factor option to try and limit things like SMS-based uh, tokens from getting sniped by a SIM swapping oh. attack. Um, and then they also recommend just in, for password-based accounts to make sure you comply with NIST standards. I would go so far as to say, make sure you exceed NIST standards because their standard for password length is still a minimum of eight characters, which 
at this day and age, an eight character password, even if it's salted, is extremely easy to crack by any skilled or any attacker with any amount I of I actually resources. really hate that there's lots and lots of standards out there that still use eight because I think me and Mark, like I prefer 16 or higher, but right now I, I've at least gotten it to 14. Uh, but there's so many publications that still post eight and it's, 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 it's outdated. It's horrible. It's so much so that uh, we have governance folks in our organization that are very much by the book. The standard says this, that kind of didn't want to move up our password past eight because see, look, it says here, 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 it's, it's wrong. NIST, get your freaking act together. Like it's broken. NIST is also the ones that say text-based SMS is bad. So they know better. And I believe NIST along with Microsoft is also the ones that say you don't have to uh, reset your password every six months anymore if you use MFA. So on one hand, they feel like they're pushing the up-to-date proper password advice. But if the, it says eight anywhere, it's bad. It's wrong. It, I personally, make it six. Like... We have password managers. There's no excuse to have a short password, no excuse at all. And for the one or two passwords you have to remember, it's trivial to create a 16 character sentence or more. Frankly, you're going to end up with more than 16 very easily just by creating a passphrase or pass, I call them pass sentences. I just, I use a sentence with punctu punctuation. It might take an extra five seconds to type, but I guarantee you muscle memory works whether it's eight characters or 24. Agreed. Sorry. I, I hate the get fact your that there's so many story. standards that say eight. Eight is, it's dumb. You're going to get cracked. I agree full heartedly. Um, so again, their mitigations are pretty high level, but they are things that would help against this type of attack, which is why I love these advisories that they keep pumping out. Because this is a ongoing threat actor that is targeting both public and private organizations. And we can learn from you know, the issues that some of their victims have faced and make sure that we set up our defenses to proactively prevent us from becoming the next victim. So hats off again to CISA and the FBI, and I'm looking forward to what we get to chat about next week on the podcast from them. <laughs> we should uh, rename so, this from uh, 443 Security Simplified to the FBI corner with Mark and Corey. Someone no. tells me naming it the FBI corner would piss off some of our European I think it would piss off a lot of folks. <laughs> uh, moving on. So the next story, it isn't exactly a new one, but it's one that has been growing in recent weeks that we haven't yet covered on the podcast. Now, so if you've been following the cybersecurity news, you would have seen a couple of fairly big victims of ransomware attacks in just the last couple of weeks. Uh, so we actually kind of talked about a piece of this issue three weeks ago with our episode where we discussed the Citrix bleed vulnerability. If you remember, that was the heart bleed-like issue where an attacker could basically read memory off of a Citrix management server. Um, By the way, I don't yes. remember. I was trying to think. One of the things you and I thought about heart bleed was while it was a big flaw, it was actually pretty hard to... Exp you had to do lots of back and forth to eventually get secret keys to leak with heart bleed. I can't remember if there's something about Citrix Bleed that made it easier, but if we underplayed it, obviously Citrix Bleed is exploitable, as you're going to find out, because it was used in a very big attack. <laughs> uh, so Heartbleed was the easy one. It was literally a ping message that you sent with 
saying your message yeah. was larger than it actually was and the response back was that length. But you still have to do a lot setup. of those, right? You don't control right. what information. So to you basically would have to do scale of that ping message to eventually get enough right. pieces to build You'd something. You'd have to do like thousands. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in this case, it is a little more in depth to set up the attack or the exploit of this vulnerability, but the result is the same. You can read memory off of the server, which typically contains whatever that server was just processing, like authenticated session materials and usernames and passwords and things that could allow you to then compromise that server. Um, so uh, just, I guess it was November 9th, uh, was when we found out that the Industrial Commercial Bank of China, or ICBC, or at least their US entity, uh, was nailed by ransomware, specifically the Lockbit variant. Uh, they gained access by exploiting initially this Citrix bleed vulnerability. Uh, they are not the only ones, though. Uh, it was also Boeing got nailed by this too at around the same time frame. Uh, the Boeing one was a little bit more uh, laundry aired out in the open, so to speak, and that Lockbit immediately put up a post on their uh, blog stating that they'd stolen a bunch of sensitive information. That they were going to start publishing it, they gave Boeing like a four-day timeline in order to pay the pay the ransom demands, which they did not. Ultimately, causing Lockbit to leak out forty-three gigabytes worth of data. Uh, in the case of ICBC, it doesn't look like they've leaked any data, but they did successfully disrupt financial trading, at least for financial trades that were going through this particular bank, um, causing some of them to not actually get settled, which the U.S. Federal Reserve actually mentioned this affected market liquidity at that time too. So, I mean, ransomware is not new. We've been talking about it as long as this podcast has existed and then some. Um, but we're seeing still in 2023, like ransomware attacks that are causing pretty big disruptions to what is ultimately a critical infrastructure service in the financial sector. And well, if you also think about it, it it's the like part of the ripple global effect is the stock market. Like the stock market isn't logical. It's based on being able to do. It's based on people's emotion about what's happening, news and stuff like that. And it's it's based on trades being made. People watch trades being made, make assumptions when something happens, and adjust their trades. You know what I mean? So if suddenly a bank can't. <laughs> can't actually do trades that were supposed to happen and it happens to be a really big organization and big things people were looking at that causes a the, the ripple effect is not only is the trade they wanted to make not happening at the right time but anyone watching you like everyone makes assumptions off assumptions because basically it's it's legalized gambling and everyone's watching what's going to happen so it, it has this ripple effect across entire industries until the people know why it really happened so it's yeah it's kind of interesting and scary just this week we saw another example of ransomware in the financial sector where i think it was alf v or black cat uh where they compromised a company a publicly traded company uh, and then when noticed that that company did not submit a disclosure to the sec for that ransomware compromise and then reported that company to the SEC for violating their mandatory disclosure rules. I wonder if that's another avenue for ransomware operators to gain money, like short the stock of a publicly traded company and then disclose publicly and to the SEC that you compromised that company. Seems like a decent way to potentially get some more money out of them if you are a 
horrible, terrible person. Yeah. So what does that, is that quadrupled? Are we up to quadruple uh, extortion now? I think so. If you take nothing else away from it, though, ransomware is still, unfortunately, floating around. And yeah, there you go. Ransomware group files SEC complaint uh, for failing to notify victims. It's who's filing the freaking DOJ complaint about the ransomware. Like it's so it's so ironically rich. These guys that the. I probably would just have to them. beep beep the word I want to use, but the the size of these guys' uh, guts are pretty big. Yep, cojones. Is that? Is I was this, going to say that, language? but uh, you probably need to beep that for all our Spanish listeners. <laughs> that was the word I almost said instead. <laughs> I think we'll allow it. I don't know. We'll see what the producer says. But anyways, <laughs> don't sleep on ransomware. Uh, no. Even if you've got great backups, which you probably do at this point, you still need to make sure you're not neglecting your defenses to prevent that data exfiltration too. Um, so moving on though, the last topic we wanted to talk about today, uh, it's not also not something brand new. In fact, the legislation around this was passed last year and it doesn't go fully into effect until next year. But so Corey, I just did a kind of European adventure for WatchGuard a few months ago or I guess last month. And one of the biggest topics while I was overseas there was the NIST 2 standard. And prior to that trip, I have to admit, I was not super familiar with this new NIST 2 legislation coming out of the European Union. Um, and so I went and did some research in it. And the reality is this is potentially impacting to a lot of at least our listener base because it is potentially applicable to any managed service provider or managed security service provider that operates within the European Union. So I wanted to take some time to go through NIST 2, what it is, what it means, and what to expect when the uh, deadline for member states of the EU comes up at the end of next year in 2024. And uh, I guess we can start with like, where it first came from. So it was back in 2016 is when the European Union introduced what they called the Network and Information Security, or NIS Directive, which defined these kind of high-level at the time cybersecurity requirements for what they called essential companies, which is the European equivalent of what we call critical infrastructure in the States. So we focus, obviously, we just did a story earlier from the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, action, especially from the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy, around the critical infrastructure sector in the States, this is that kind of functional equivalent over in the European Union. So last year... By the way, uh, just because e uh, you'll probably get to this, but the, the one of the key things for the, like you say, it's mostly critical services, and I'm showing, there's many documents online about NIST. I picked NIST 2, I should say, not NIST, NIST 2. Uh, I, I picked this one later on when we talk about uh, ourselves. Uh, but MSPs, one of the things this isn't highlighting as much, and what I'm showing here is that also MSPs, IT service management, anyone that manages IT services are considered part of critical infrastructure. So if you're an MSP or MSSP in Europe, uh, you do need to comply with NIST as I understand it. Yep. So it was last year the EU passed NIST 2, which extends that original directive 
It both designates more sectors as essential, and then it imposes stricter security obligations to entities that operate in those sectors. Now, the legislation is technically already in effect, but they've given EU member states until October 2024 to take this directive and implement it into actual national law. It is left up to interpretation of member states, so individual countries may have different requirements, stronger or weaker, but they'll all have the same kind of base level requirements that we'll get into in a second. So it starts, it defines uh, essential services, as it calls it, as sectors whose disruption could have grave consequences for either regional or society as a whole, regional security or society as a whole. In the appendix for the actual NIST II directive law they passed, they've got a few specifics in there. Uh, they've got energy, transportation, banking, financial market infrastructure, health, uh, water, both drinking and waste, digital infrastructure, which is the subcategories for that are like internet service providers, cloud services. They do specifically call out DNS and DNS registrars as well, too. That makes sense. Uh, there's public administration, <laughs> space, but then for our audience, the most applicable one is IT service management, which is explicitly MSPs and MSSPs as outlined in that directive. Now, it also... By the way, just so the viewers, the ones watching know, this is the directive, but do just be, if you go to any of our links, do know it's a... It's a dense document, so it's kind of hard. It's not one I'm going to show during the podcast because it's just a lot of very dense words. Yep. Uh, like other EU laws, it doesn't just impact companies that are headquartered in mm -hmm. the European Union. It affects anyone that operates within the EU too. So if you're a, an MSP that is in like an adjacent company, uh, but you at least have business in the EU, then you are covered or impacted by this new directive. So as well. US companies that deal in the, I do notice that there's probably some people have questions, is the UK part of the European Union? And no, they're not. But I have a feeling this heavily impacts everyone in the UK anyways, because they're a country that by necessity still has to do business with the European Union. Yep. So even though they've kind of pulled out of that, they're, they're very much impacted. Now, when it comes to these essential sectors, uh, in most cases, it only applies to companies whose annual revenue is 10 million euros or higher and who have 250 or more employees on their payroll. Um, it does apply to some entities that they've defined as critical, regardless of size. Uh, think like the most critical, actual critical infrastructure sectors. And it also they explicitly call out DNS registration services as it applies to them no matter what, regardless of their size too. That makes I, sense. I liked it. Yeah. It's finally it's taken the power. EU to point out how important DNS and how potentially vulnerable that whole dang sector is. Um, so beyond essential services, though, they also define what they call important entities, too. And these are basically everyone that falls into those buckets, but who don't meet those size requirements. So if you're an MSP or an MSSP with less than 10 million bucks in annual revenue or less than 250 employees, you're not a essential service, but you are a important service. And the distinction is essential entities will have proactive supervision from the European Union and their member states, uh, whereas important entities are only going to be monitored after they have a non-compliance incident uh, reported. So basically, you still have to follow all the rules, but they're not going to like keep tabs on you regularly, but 
if something pops up and you're found out of compliance, now you're on their naughty list and you will be uh, being monitored. Um, so when it comes to the actual requirements, it's basically what you would expect from this type of legislation. And again, these are the high level ones uh, that are laid out by the NIST2 directive. It is still up for the member states to figure out how to interpret these into actual laws. But at a high level, there's four main areas that they're focusing on. First is training and awareness. So they want to make sure that uh, companies are liable for ensuring their employees gain sufficient knowledge and skills to allow them to identify risk and assess cybersecurity risk management practices. The next one is just risk management measures in general, basically saying companies need to do their best to implement appropriate technical, operational, and organizational safeguards to manage and mitigate risk. Then they go into reporting obligations, which we've seen parallels to this in the States already, where you're, but it's actually it's even more strict in this too. They're saying you have to notify a, a CSERT or another reporting authority within 24 hours of Gosh. awareness of an incident or suspected incident. That might be an issue. With the caveat or the scope of if it has cross-border impact or potential cross-border uh -huh. impact. So if it's something isolated, you could probably weasel around that one. But if you are an essential business and it could have cross-border impact, it's 24 hours as soon as you smell like something is off. You might be getting to this when you get to the certifications requirement, but I wanted to kind of shortcut this by saying it really is base level. When it comes to the requirements, it's it's base level 101. Like it's not it's not that crazy other than maybe details like that 24-hour thing. But I did want to point out that most of this maps to ISO 2701. Like if you have any sort of standard-based framework, CIS, uh, Australians Essential 8 or their bigger list, uh, you know, pick whatever framework you want. And it's probably going to give you all the standards that you need to, to kind of meet these requirements. They don't seem overly onerous to me. They don't seem unusual. And uh, there's actually, I, I believe they talk about, I believe the NIST document itself uh, talks about ISO 21-2701 being a good management system framework for this. You know, the European Union Agency for Cybersecurity maps many of these uh, directives to ISO 2701. And I also did that to mention, like, if you're in Europe and you're doing this kind of thing and you have to uh, you know, notice supply chain. I don't think Mark mentioned it, but they do talk about supply chain security in this. We're an ISO 2701 company. So do you know that, that we're trying to also meet the standards you would have to do in this as well? Back to uh, reporting obligations. So beyond that 24 hours for cross-border, uh, within 72 hours, you must uh, submit an initial assessment of any incidents, including severity, impact, and indicators of compromise presumably to facilitate information sharing with other sectors, but that is another pretty rapid timeline. Can we pause there? Because I just don't know if that's even... Like, I, you and I are probably for generally fast notification, especially when legally required. But it's always been things like 30... Like, now they're getting to 20... I, for critical infrastructure, I get it's different. But I would argue, unless you have a super advanced security team, and I would question if that's actually the case at small energy facilities at all. You don't have an assessment. Like, 
I've seen companies take weeks to figure out root cause. So it just seems some of these reporting notifications seem really quick. Uh, and then you that's not even to talk to that. Usually the first agency you probably report to is your local law enforcement if it's a big enough issue. And then they may have restrictions on what they want to share until the there. You know what I mean? So I'm curious what you think about the, the 20, 72 hours for an initial assess. I guess they say initial. So exactly. hopefully they realize it's not a perfect assessment, but uh, I don't think most companies know much in the first 72 hours. Well, the good news is you've got more time for that root cause report. It's uh, within a month you have to complete a final report that outlines, outlines root cause and the overall impact and the mitigation measures you implemented. This first one, it does seem basically like a, based off what you know, what is the potential impact and who could potentially be impacted by it? And what are the IOCs you've spotted so far to start that information sharing is how I interpreted it. Um, That's, that, that seems generally good in most cases, if you can do it. A lot's going on well, though. So this is definitely something you want to put in your process. Like I, I think most incident handlers would rather figure out their own crap. So having to realize, wait a second, we have to also generate this report in doing, you better make that part of your playbook. And especially when you consider the lower bounds for this is companies of 250 people, which probably don't even have a security team. Like they probably outsource to a service provider of some sort. It's It makes it pretty difficult to get a lot of this information because you're going to spend that first day like bringing in incident response team and you've already lost 24 hours. Well, there's another mitigation, or not a mitigation, but a security strategy is... For your, whenever we talk about backup, you know, business continuity and disaster recovery, everyone thinks backups and high availability in another site. But maybe part of it is having both uh, an external law firm and an external forensic firm on retainer. Because to what Mark just said, what if you do need to pull in an external forensic firm because you don't have your own security? Well, if you haven't already selected one, if you don't already have a relationship, if they haven't already looked at your network and have a under, if you don't have it on retainer ready to go where they've already looked at your stuff, you're never going to make these deadlines. Uh, so it's not just about <laughs> going out and getting help. It's about literally having it on retainer and having done the pre-planning where that particular whatever, you know, provider you've picked to help you out in these situations, they already know the lay of the land. You already have that pre-relationship because these timelines are getting pretty tight. Yeah. It seems like if you are at least in critical infrastructure or one of these essential sectors, that is going to be a pretty strong requirement in order for you to be able to comply with these new laws coming down. Um, you mentioned, Corey, certifications. Now, that's the last item that they have on here where they say member states may require organizations to employ or deploy specific information and communication technology products, services, and processes that are certified under EU cybersecurity certification schemes. So basically, they're leaning on ANISA, the European Union Agency for Cybersecurity, to come up with these schemes, which right now they're still actively doing. There aren't any actually defined and finalized yet. But they're coming up with certification requirements for products that we, you would use in your IT infrastructure. And they're saying that member states might end up just having this list and saying, anything that you use has to be certified you know, A plus by this certification scheme, or you can't use it. 
uh, in order to be compliance with this law. And we've hinted at like, or talked about this coming from like the insurance side as well of insurers maybe having a list of approved or disapproved. It's interesting having this come from the legislative arm for the EU as well as saying, hey, we need a good certification process for validating security of like the SDLC and the product itself. And then B, just straight up say you have to use those, period, if you're one of these essential organizations, which again, includes MSPs and MSSPs. I will say the good news, just to toot our own horn, is uh, the European Union Agency for Cybersecurity. It's easier to say that than ANISA. ANISA, I don't know how to pronounce it. ANISA does seem to approve ISO 2701 and often map to it. So uh, if you need to pick one. ISO 2701 is a pretty good international standard. I think there's another one, ISO 23301, which is more about backup business continuity and, and that kind of thing too. But either way, yep. It is definitely interesting that now the government is saying you have to use these ones, you know, not just pick a standard, but here are the ones we approve of. So I think like taking a step back again, none of this is really finalized of how it will look in practice, but the ball is rolling and the clock is ticking and it's October 2024 is the deadline for EU member states to have something on the books. Got a little will... over a year. Yep. And so if you are a service provider that operates in the EU or someone in another essential sector over there, this is absolutely something you'll need to be paying attention to and making sure that you are ready to go once the laws are on the books or else you could be in for a bit of a world of hurt judging by some of the other penalties coming from the EU and related areas too. So I guess we'll probably have to do another follow-up podcast once some of these laws do start coming out to give some additional guidance. But for now, at least stay tuned and keep an eye on these. And I don't know, Corey, I, I don't want to speak for you. I'm not necessarily pro-regulation, but I am kind of glad that governments are focusing on cybersecurity and trying to do something. And I'm sure they'll get a lot wrong along the way, but at least they're trying. I I, I agree. I think uh, I, I'm, I'm not for or against regulation. I feel like uh, a human society should always hopefully figure out the way to do the right thing for everyone without negligence or too many mistakes and regulation should only happen when it's it's clear that we're not able to take care of ourselves so i feel like we do need regulation as an industry right now because there's been right now the bad guys seem to be doing very well sorry i trivialize threat actors as just bad guys but you know what i mean there are they, bad girls in there too uh, bad people bad I yep. use gay, uh, guys uh, kind of asexually, you know, threat actors, whatever you want to call them. They've been succeeding a lot and in some pretty big business. So whether that is it's a stacked odds because we have to defend everything and they just have to find one thing or whether that's we haven't we haven't put enough time, money and effort into cybersecurity. I don't know, but it seems clear regulation could help there. So I do hope it helps. I will say to be contrarian. I feel like everything humanity does is a pendulum. We have been swinging on the side of not secure enough, a lot of breaches happening. And right now the pendulum's going to swing towards regulation. And with the pendulum, I have a feeling it's also going to overswing in that direction too. And we're, because we have got into a state where we're losing a lot of time and money and valuable things because of cyber attacks, 
every country, every everyone's talking about this and everyone is writing these regulations at the same time. Like we just need to, and I think they're probably going to overregulate. And it's going to take some time for that middle ground. You know, there there should be a middle balance of of not making it impossible to do business. So my only worry is, as we see GDPR, as we see one day a federal privacy law in the United States, not just CCPA and others, as we see all this regulation roll out because it's much needed, we're going to then realize that lots of companies are not spending enough on security, but then when they spend as much as they need to meet the regulation, it's going to affect their business. And then maybe it will, like in a five-year time period, maybe there will be a backlash to over-regulation. We'll find a middle ground. I guess that's why these type of things, whether it be NIS 1, 2, 3, GDPR version 1, 2, 3, PCI version, are they at 10 yet? Uh, that that happens. But I, I, I'm glad we're getting the regulation. I guess I'm just predicting in five years, I think we might be a little over-regulated and have businesses that complain that it's a little too much. And it will take a, a right time to find that medium that both makes sure no one's neglectful, but also doesn't give impossible tasks. Uh, a lot of the ivory tower stuff that we talk about, it's frankly, sometimes hard when you're a small business to do it that well and actually make any money. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like if you are an essential organization, someone a part oh, you of need critical to. Yeah, infrastructure, yeah. If critical infrastructure. Region, maybe you do need slightly lower profit margins. And but that's always figure. what it turns into, right? Like risk management. Uh, if yep. you're a faux shop, the impact may not be as big, so you can lax a little. If you're literally dependent upon by millions and millions of people, the risk, the impact is much greater. So hopefully everyone will do enough of the risk management in their regulations to make sure the, the toughest regulations are only on the ones with the biggest impact. And obviously critical infrastructure is part of that. Cool. Agreed. Well said. Yeah. So good luck, everyone. <laughs> Why do we always, <laughs> this is all solvable, man. We seem to have downers. It's all, it's, it's all just work. It's all just work. Yep. And yes, it's a lot and of work, but we can do it. There you go. We can do it. Probably. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm crossing my fingers as I said that, literally. <laughs> we can do it. Just a lot of work, Mark. You have more faith than me. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, or Corey will be sad. If you have any questions on today's podcast or suggestions for future episodes, you can reach out to us on Twitter, the giant black hole that is Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey's at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. When are we just going to add listening. Mastodon? Uh, that would Thank involve me listening. actually using my Mastodon account as account. well, which I equally don't. Blue sky. No. What is it? Threads. Ew. Yeah. Social media sucks. Don't use it. Just email us. But See thank you, you for listening. Week. There you go. Yeah.